To honor our heritage in the Reformation, uh, this sermon will be one hour long. <laughs> and if I feel we need another hour to digest it, I will proceed. No, I won't. I speak to you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Eugene Peterson, who you see on the screens, died Monday in Montana. He was 85. A great mind was descending into shadows, and a great heart stopped beating. And you may remember me quoting him in sermons and borrowing his words for the slides and the nine o'clock bulletin. I, I, I've been surprised this past week by the impact of his death on so many of my friends and colleagues and on me. And even more, realizing how much his writing influenced my faith and my preaching, especially at times in my ministry when I needed guidance, and particularly when I needed a good kick in the butt. But last Sunday we read from his translation of Psalm 104, and I chose it because he knew how to open the wonderful, surprising, even troubling imagery of that psalm and of all of Scripture for us in our time. I also picked it as a kind of prayer for his peaceful passage to the life that he knew was in store for him. And a friend reported that one of the last things he said was, let's go. I'm telling you about him today because Eugene Peterson was a Presbyterian by belief, temperament, and choice. So Reformation Sunday is the best time, if you'll indulge me, to pay tribute to him. And Peterson's writing reflects the open-eyed wonder that we are invited to experience in those words of John Calvin that were on the screens before the service. There is not one blade of grass, there is no color in this world that is not intended to make us rejoice. I've been reading Peterson's memoir this week, and in each chapter he tells of events in his life, encounters with people, discoveries in his environment, both sacred and profane. He looks back and sees God at work with him, for him, on him, in every place, at every stage of his life. And Peterson's understanding of his life and his faith is exemplified by our reading from Romans, starting with verse 28. We know all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to God's purpose. Eugene Peterson translated it this way. God's Spirit is right alongside us, helping us along. That's why we can be so sure that every detail in our lives of love for God is worked into something good. Now, the last 11 verses of Romans chapter 8 have long been associated with our Reformed tradition because they set out the grounds for our assurance that God is with us. God will not leave us alone. God won't let us go. And then there's the F word and the P word there in verse 29. We'll get to those in a moment, but they distract attention from the beautiful words and images in the rest of the reading. Reformation Sunday. The date is determined by proximity to October 31st, when 501 years ago, the legend says, 
Martin Luther posted an invitation to debate on the, on the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany. That door was the university bulletin board. John Calvin was eight years old at the time, far away in France. At 28, he published the first edition of his revolutionary work of systematic theology. His story is our story. As Presbyterians, heirs of John Calvin, and his exceptionally zealous student, John Knox. John Calvin was learned in the law. He did his theology, both as a lawyer and a philosopher. As far as we know, he was never ordained. But along the way, he learned how to be a pastor and to teach pastors. Last Sunday, a friend was visiting, and she told me of her visit to Geneva. And she is of Dutch Reformed background, and she very, want, very much wanted to go and see St. Peter's Church, where Calvin preached. But she was with a group of girl guides, and they really weren't interested in the Reformation. <clears throat> I was tempted, but too polite to ask her, if while she was in Geneva, she ever went to the bathroom. Because flushing a toilet in Geneva is a tribute to John Calvin. Calvin reformed the church. But he wanted to rebuild the city, too, for the good of all people. And one of the first things he insisted on was sanitary sewers for Geneva, and health care for everyone, and help for the poor, and education for children. And the list goes on. The first tenet of Reformed and Presbyterian belief is that God is sovereign. The second is that we are utterly dependent on God's grace. And Calvin believed that we could see through the eyes of faith signs of God's grace and sovereignty everywhere. And he reasoned then that God's presence and power in the world are irresistible. But why doesn't everyone admit that? Why doesn't everyone get with the program? Calvin looked out the windows and he realized that with human dirt now running beneath the streets, why was there so much dirt in the streets and alleys and homes and taverns and brothels of Geneva? God is sovereign and good. Why does the world still seem beyond redemption? He tried to answer that question, and his logic took him further than most Presbyterians and Reformed Christians today wish he went, still not as far as some who came after him. That's the problem with theological education. It trains you to identify a mystery, scratch the surface of it, say, hey, look at what I found, and then spend the rest of your life working out, extrapolating from it, and taking it as far as reason will take you. That's where the F and P words from verses 28 and 29 come in. Foreknowledge and predestination. And Calvin wasn't the first to get stuck on those words. How is it possible not to believe in the sovereign, irresistible God? Therefore, it makes sense that God must know in advance who will believe and who won't. So God must have decided their destiny long before time. Some will be saved and some will be lost forever. It is all God's will. There it's all sewn up. 
Well, it may be sewn up, but it doesn't fit. But few people outside the Presbyterian Church can even pronounce Presbyterian anymore. But there are still those who will quickly respond to an introduction. Presbyterian? Aren't you those people who believe in predestination? By which they mean fatalism, that we are all helpless, puppets on God's strings, robots with a detailed onboard program. And I've heard more than once, so you're a Presbyterian, you must think I'm going to hell. But for every verse in the Bible that can be read to support the concepts of F and P, there must be at least two that describe how human behavior can change God's mind and that set out clear choices for people and that tell of God at work in and through, sometimes the enemies of the people who call themselves the people of God. So here's Peterson's translation of verses 29 and 30, sans F and P. God knew what he was doing from the very beginning. God decided from the outset to shape the lives of those who love him along the same lines as the life of his son. The son stands first in the line of humanity God restored. We see the original and intended shape of our lives there in him. After God made that decision of what his children should be like, God followed it up by calling people by name. And after he called them by name, God set them on a solid basis with himself. And then, after getting them established, God stayed with them to the end, gloriously completing what he had begun. Well, God has a plan for you and for me to make Jesus the standard so God's Spirit can work with us, for us, on us, and in us to live up to that standard. And so according to the NRSV, we are predestined to be conformed to the image of God's Son. Our destiny is sure. And so we are called to be part of a process of becoming more and more Christ-like in this life. There's nothing there about God deciding ahead of time who will believe and who won't, and who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. Our destiny is to follow Jesus and along the way to grow into living the life of Jesus. So what do you think? With God on our side like this, how can we lose? Do you think anyone is going to be able to drive a wedge between us and Christ's love for us. There is no way. Not trouble, not hard times, not hatred, not hunger, not homelessness, not bullying threats, not backstabbing, not even the worst sins listed in Scripture. None of this phases us because God loves us. And I'm absolutely convinced that nothing, nothing living or dead, angelic or demonic, today or tomorrow, high or low, thinkable or unthinkable, absolutely nothing can get between us and God's love because of the way that Jesus, our Master, has embraced us. Those are words taken from Eugene Peterson's translation of Romans 8, 31 to 39. Jesus has embraced and folded 
humanity. And maybe in the end, there will be those who still do not accept all of this. And that is not for us to know, or worry about, or wonder, or try to work theologically or logically. So here we are, five centuries after Luther and Calvin and Knox. What's the big deal? Well, how about this? Behind the systematic theology, beneath the history, still intact, despite all of the abuses of the tradition throughout those five centuries, is this bedrock. God is with us. God will not leave us alone. God won't let go. God won't let us go. Jesus put that to work in flesh and blood and did it for all humanity's sake. Us means everyone. John Calvin and John Knox, and there are many horribly true things we could say about John Knox, but they knew very little of the whole world. Their world wasn't any less complex than ours, but it was smaller. And they didn't know the variety and diversity that delight God so much. But they also saw no line between church and world, sacred and secular, even between theology and politics. The health of the people of Geneva in body was as important as their health in spirit to John Calvin. No line between church and world, sacred and secular, theology and politics. All were and are equally under God's sovereignty. God cares about them. So we have good news to share, news that's good for all people. We have reason to be concerned about the world and conditions for all people in the world. And we have the call and the resources in God's spirit that we need to take our concerns into action. And no, we don't live in 16th century Western Europe or in Scotland, but we live in a world in turmoil just as the reformers did. They faced opposition, often violent opposition. We face more indifference. Now as then, our communities, our neighborhoods, and yes, our churches need people who can love, speak, act with joy. Because we know God is with us all. God will not leave any of us alone. God will not let any of us go. And Jesus put that to work in flesh and blood and did it for all humanity's sake. We can start by looking for God at work in our world present and powerful, even in the simplest things, in the least expected places, because we know there is not one blade of grass, there is not one color in the world that is not intended to make us rejoice. I'll add a postscript about yesterday's events in Pittsburgh because a Lutheran friend reminded me yesterday that the Reformation also touched off a wave of anti-Semitism in Europe. Luther in particular, in his writings. 
and contributed to centuries of violence and disgrace. And so when we hear in this season of Reformation of a Jewish community under siege because of their faith, because they were different, and because they were reaching out to help refugees who were different and therefore dangerous and frightening, should be subjected to one man's retributive violence. But he was one man in a long tradition of anti-Semitism and anti-Judaism. And people of all faiths, no one could have stopped it, but people of all faiths have stood up afterward and said, this will not stand. But we should remember that the history that we celebrate today has its dark side. Historians outside the church and some inside focus only on the dark side, while we believe there was also great light shed in the Reformation. But it is very much a part of our tradition to treat all people equally and to believe that the promises of God and the grace of God are for the whole world. And so when those who suffer, when those who die because they are different and frighten those who cannot accept that anyone could be different, we must take our stand, which is God's stand.